We've been working through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Right before I read this, I want to just give you a quick uh, context for what we're about to look at. When Philipp- Philippians is a really warm, warm letter. Paul's heart is so full of love, and he's writing this church in Philippi. It is a military town, heavily occupied, with constant reminders of who's in charge. Rome. And in this context of where, where, the, where the, the small church under the growing you know, regime of, of, of Rome at that time, the crushing fist of Rome at that time, is being encouraged. And the Apostle Paul is writing this from prison. So the whole context for this warm letter of encouragement, this sense of joy that transcends circumstance, is coming in horrible circumstances from a guy who doesn't even know if he's going to live to see this church again. And in chapter 1, he says, you know, he wants God who began the work in the church to complete it by his power. And he uses this term, he says, walk worthy of the gospel. The Greek term he uses is politia este, which, mean, which sounds like you can hear the word politics in there. He's saying, you know, live as a citizen uh, here in Philippi, but live as a citizen of the kingdom. Whereby the, the governing principles of your lives are, is the wise guidance of God's word because of the glory of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this this game-changing motivation that, that comes with the realization that this life is not all that there is, but that Christ has risen from the dead and that has implications. You get to chapter 2, and he says a lot of things, but among them, chapter 2 gives us this Christ hymn, set of verses. It's like a creed, an ancient creed that the church had been declaring right from the beginning that Jesus Christ, the man, had risen from the dead and was the Son of God. Not this idea that evolved over time. Not this legend that grew. He wasn't just a loving guy caring for the underdog. And eventually they worshipped him as God. But overnight, the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans worshipped the resurrected Jesus as the Christ. You find that in chapter 2. As it declares boldly that Christ did not consider his uh, divinity with God something to be grasped. But he laid it down. So Jesus Christ, who is God, fully God fully divine, becomes fully human, takes on humanity, takes humanity and adds it on to his divinity. And Jesus Christ lives uh, the life that we ought to be living but aren't, and he dies this atoning death for all of our sin, and he raises from death in the grave. And from there, Paul moves on, he says, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This shocking phrase, fear and trembling. Not fear and trembling like a phobic fear where we're supposed to be God is this cosmic tyrant and that if we don't please him, we're destroyed and crushed. He's not, a, he's not a cosmic tyrant. He's a loving father. And so we work out this salvation, this amazing gift, with a sense of fear and trembling, which could also be translated, this pervasive, energetic, you know, sense of awe and reverence and worship. Or by like there is a trembling where we desire to walk out the implications of this resurrected Jesus in our lives. And so there's, there's a, a, a sense of, uh, of tenacity about it, an energy that's being expended about it. Uh, about, uh, about it. That chapter 2, you see this promise of salvation, the power to walk out the salvation in Christ, and this pathway that looks like not being people who are grumbling and complaining, living in constant discontent, living in this sort of, your soul being like this bubbling cauldron of anger and disappointment and to, and to just basically be an echo of all the groanings of the culture. He's calling the church out of that on the basis of Christ and his goodness. And he's saying that, you know, there's a pathway to live out uh, the goodness of our salvation, of our God. Which brings us to the text today, Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are of the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and in the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. I really just have one point, and we're just going to keep unpacking it. And we see here in this portion of Scripture that there is this joy that transcends suffering. If you look at verse 1, it's right there. Rejoice, right? Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Again, remember where he is. Remember what's going on. Remember the culture. Remember the government. Nothing's good. So there is a joy that transcends suffering and there's like the presence of God that's empowering and enabling us to endure suffering. And as you move through the passage, we see that that same presence and power, that grace, it, it fuels us as ministers so that we're actually willing to minister, get outside of ourselves and minister, regardless of if that brings any sort of suffering. So let's begin to unpack this. In verse 2, he warns that there's teaching on its way. And the teaching is not good. Um, He uses strong language here. Teaching is coming. It's going to erase the gospel. It's going to be salvation by rule keeping. That's what's on its way. And uh, Paul doesn't say, hey, listen, there's some teaching coming. And, you know, it's going to have some different nuances. He doesn't say that. And why does he do that? You see, he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's referring to circumcision. Now, remember, he's, he's circumcised. He's actually written in Romans that he says, is there any benefit to the circumcision? Where he's actually being very positive about God choosing uh, the, the Jews as his chosen people. And he says, is there any benefit to the circumcision? In the book of Romans, he goes, well, of course. It reminds you of God's covenant love. It reminds you that you can keep failing and failing and failing and his grace will be there for you. I mean, on, the, on God's covenant promise, which at that time, under that dispensation was circumcision, if you're a man and if you're a woman, it was who am I related to, who's circumcised, okay, then based on that promise, at that point in history, it was this way of saying, like, you know, God's grace is towards us. So in Romans, Paul's very positive. Here he just calls it mutilation. They're mutilating the flesh. Why is he using that strong language? Because the teaching that's coming is saying, here's how you save yourself. The teaching that's on its way that Paul totally rejects is that Christ's substitution is not enough. What Paul rejects is the idea that at the cross, Christ did something that requires your contribution, constant contribution. And Paul says, it's not the gospel. Watch out for the dogs. 
Christ's substitution does not require our ongoing contribution so that at the end of the day, God accepts us. That is not the gospel. And he shows that the teaching is deeply flawed because then he lists a a bunch of things that everybody would put a lot of confidence and trust in. In verse 6, he even goes on to say, I was keeping all the law and I was blameless. Right? See that text there in verse 6. He said, he's like, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Checked all the boxes. He doesn't mean righteousness as in he was standing before God pure. We know that because again, Paul's not a moron. He was an, a tremendous intellectual, academic, philosopher. Speaking and working out things that just changed uh, the Greco-Roman world as the, these communities, these churches were walking out the implications of the gospel. So this guy is not writing one thing to Rome saying... There is no, none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. None righteous. And then, in, and then writing a letter to Philippi and saying, oh, under the law, I was actually blameless. I was pulling it off. He, what he is saying here is, I didn't miss a beat. I didn't miss a thing. All of the spiritual disciplines that were required of me, I did. But that's not going to save you. We do all those things for a totally different reason. It would also be a mistake to read all of this and say, oh, well, it seems to me that Paul is just saying, let's just toss out the spiritual disciplines. There's no need for scripture reading and meditation. There's no need for prayer. There's no need for confession. Why should I put a high priority on gathering together in community and walking my faith out? It's like if you read this portion and you conclude that all of a sudden spiritual disciplines aren't important. It's like you didn't read the chapter leading up to this where he's saying a number of things including work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's, he's pretty hot under the collar as he's writing all of these things and what he's hoping to get us to see is that keeping all of the rituals externally doesn't make any of us pure internally. For that we need grace. That is the message of the church. The, the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. The one who takes away all our sin. That's why when you look at verses 4 to 6 there, um, this is a, he lists all of his trophies. And for us as moderns, we don't really understand the implications of all these trophies he's listing. In 4 to 6, we're like, well, that's kind of a weird flex. But the original readers would have been absolutely shocked at the things that Paul was listing, the things that they all would have trusted in and, you know, and, and aspired to be very diligent at. And Paul is saying in all of this, this isn't where you can allocate your trust. And there's teaching on its way that's going to tell you that's exactly where you should allocate all your trust. What Paul is doing is he is getting us to glory in Christ. The important thing about this is because there's a big difference between glorying in Christ and glorying in yourself. Uh, the, the leaders during the time of the Reformation used phrases like this. There's a theology of the cross, and then there's a theology of glory. In the theology of glory, the main actor is you. And in the theology of the cross, the main actor is Christ. In the theology of glory, this here, then you think you're being saved by all of your diligence and your progress. But in the theology of the cross, you recognize, actually, I'm being saved not by my progress, but by Christ's perfection. So I don't actually throw away my obedience. I actually strain every nerve for obedience. But I'm motivated by something completely different. Because there's no earning in any of this. There's no earning, just enjoyment. There's a show on TV called The Good Place. I don't know if any of you guys have watched that. But what a, what a hilarious and interesting, you know, philosophical, spiritual musings on the afterlife. They amalgamated so much so many different worldviews in, in that show. It was hilarious. But the premise is basically this, if you've never seen the show. All of us humans on planet Earth go through a point system. 
And everything that we do is earning us points. And at the end of your life, if you earned enough points, you go to the good place. You don't earn enough points, you go to the bad place. If there's some confusion over the points, you go to the middle place. The medium place, sorry. And, um, you know, the message of Christianity, the message of what Paul's getting at here is that uh, Christ is enough. The mes- our message to our city is that Christ is enough and we're with him. At the end of this very short life, we are united to the one who defeated death on the basis of his goodness. For all of us as believers united to Christ, who are, as the previous chapter said, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, what that ends up looking like is adopted children who've been adopted by this gracious father learning to work out family values. And so because we trust in his grace and because we trust in his love and because we trust and we can, we can breathe easy knowing that at the end of our life we already have the verdict. The verdict is not guilty. We're free now to strain every nerve to try and love the other people who are in this room around us. Build, build community groups and do youth ministry and return back downtown and bring a refugee here from Turkey and feed the homeless and put clothes in those bins every week to, to, to take care of the, the poor who this winter don't have warm clothing. I mean, we're going to do all these things not with one eyeball at the sky saying, did you see that, God? Did you see that? Did you see what I just did? I hope you wrote that one. Did you see what I just put in the bin there? If everything that we do as believers has this fear buzzing around our ear like a mosquito that won't leave us alone going, make sure that you're a good person and God doesn't say, if, if everything we do is motivated by that, then none of the good works we're doing are good. Because we're not really serving, they're all self-serving. He's not saying throw away our disciplines, but be heavily motivated. You know, when, when we were all, uh, those of us who are Blue Jays fans and why we are, we don't know, but we, we were all hanging in there for that wild card win and strike out and fly out and ground out and strike out and then somebody would get a hit and they'd get a hit and they'd be on base and they all do the same thing they look at the they look at the bench they look at all the players who some of them struck out some of them flied out some of them grounded out they basically had done nothing and the one that finally gets the hit looks down in the dugout and they go let's go what are they doing when they do that do they want everybody on the bench to go, <laughs> what am I doing in the major leagues? That's not what, the, the reason they do it is when they're like, did you see what I just did? Let's go. The whole, the whole drive behind the motivation is to encourage. This is the tone of all the texts in the New Testament that sound quite a bit like, let's go. We get to this point where He's so intense about this, he uses a word that only shows up one time in the entire New Testament. And it's really, really striking. It's slang, actually. And it's, and it's repulsive. And the, and the English translators translated it as uh, rubbish. It's in verse 8. I count it all as rubbish. Some of your translations say, I count it all as dung. And both of those things are true. Those are accurate, accurate translations of the Greek. They're also really weak. If I was to use the English equivalent of that, some of you would go, yeah, give it to us, preacher. And some of you would be so offended you would not return to church. Some of you would be plugging the, well, I don't see any little kids in here, so you don't have to plug their ears. But that would be what it was. This is, that's, what, that's where Paul goes with this. That's how serious he is about it. 
The Greek word is skubala. And he's just like, man, you put your trust in all this stuff. And the thing that you have put your trust in that is a heaping steam and pile. A bull skubala. And that's what it is. And it's not just for shock value. He's calling bull skubala. He's calling it. But it's not just shock value. Right? If I was to not really dive into the, the significance of it and just do that, I'd be like, ha ha, shock value. Just made everyone in the church nervous. Yeah, shock value. That's not what the apostle's doing here. It's not shock value. It's, it's because it's, it's to trust in yourself and to care for the refugee and to put, to do the things that we do as a church with the idea that that is somehow making God accept you and love you. It's not only useless, which was the first part. The skubala, the purpose of him saying skubala, it's all skubala, is that it's not just useless, it's disgusting. And so he picks that word so that the, the, so that the church stop and really think about it. Because, you know, word choice matters, right? If you're, those of you, for all of you in your, in, your, in your comings and goings of life, the words you choose to communicate with things matters. And they, and they bring different reactions and you know, if sometimes you don't, if words are weak, you don't really react. You just ignore things. And then when language gets really strong, language gets, you know, a little hyperbolic, all of a sudden we're paying attention. Right? If you've ever been in a car and there's a little kid in the back seat, maybe a niece or a nephew or one of your own kids or something. If you've ever been with a child and the child says, I don't feel so good. You're like, okay, well, that could, okay, well, hang on, we're going to pull over. How are you doing? What did it tell me why I feel? But I don't feel so good. Like that word choice changes things. If that child says to you, I'm going to puke, you're pulling over immediately. I just, there's an immediate action. This is the purpose of Paul picking, picking that kind of language. He wants the church to have a reaction to this, not just, not just you know, sort of pass, pass on by it. Is he wants us to realize that God took on humanity. That has huge implications for identity. It means that the gospel not only liberates us from the guilt of our sin, the gospel liberates us from the burden of trusting in our own achievement. He's not saying toss your disciplines, toss your obedience. Not at all. He's saying you're not saved by it. Consider why you're doing it. To trust in our achievement... The skubala that Paul brings up. To, to trust in all of that, that leads to one of two things. That will create one of two cultures in this church. Swaggering or sniveling. To trust in your achievement, to trust in your disciplines, to trust in your growth, your spiritual community, uh, maturity. That will create a community here of comparison. You'll either be swaggering because you think you're better than the people sitting around you. Or you'll be sniveling because you think everybody sitting around you is better than you are. And both our inward focus curved in both, ironically, erase the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he dials us away from all of that. When you get to uh, verse 8, he says, Christ has surpassing worth that Jesus is the great equalizer. In him we're all alive. Without him we're all dead. Jesus was righteous by nature. We're, we're declared righteous by grace. Verse 10 um, he says, you know, he's bound to Christ, he wants to share in his suffering. And I close with this. What does he mean by sharing in the suffering? Why are we called to share in suffering? We don't even like, as moderns, we don't even like this word suffering. Is he saying that Christians are just destined for arbitrarily hard lives? 
live a hard life of suffering and this makes you holy. You know, before we answer this, just think about the world that we live in. Whether you are a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or a Hebrew, whether you are a person of faith or non-faith, if you're a human being on planet Earth, you will go through suffering. We have to grapple with the inescapable reality of suffering. So the good news of the gospel here is that we have this God who has entered into our suffering. We're called to emulate his, in, emulate his life, which is a life of suffering. But it's not just arbitrary, hard life suffering. Sharing in Christ's suffering is very, very specific. Again, remember the context. Paul is not writing this on the beaches of Greece, drinking ouzo, like, yo, here's a letter to the Philippi. He's in prison. It's, but he's in prison for a specific reason. Christ's suffering was specific. The apostles' sufferings were specific. Our sufferings are to be specific. We may go through hard times, whether it be economic or in our health, and suffering can take those forms. But what we're being called to is a specific suffering. It's particular. Christ suffered and was crucified because he claimed he was God who came to save us from our sin. Paul was in prison because he proclaimed that Jesus was God who came to save us from our sin. And you and I are called to suffer, whatever form that suffering may take, by being willing to proclaim here in Kitchener-Waterloo that Jesus Christ is God who came to save us from our sin. The word suffering in the Greek is, is pathematon. It comes from the, 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 the root pasco. And pasco means um, driving emotional force. When we talk about the suffering of Christ, we're talking about the driving passionate force of his life. When we talk about us being called into life of suffering, to share Christ's suffering, we're called to share his passion, share his driving force. That's why Paul goes on to say, hey, I want to be like him in his death. I mean, Christ died on the cross, and if I die in this Roman prison, it doesn't mean all Christians and believers globally have to die in prison. It means that the same thing that drove Jesus is driving me. The same message that drove Jesus is the message that's driving me. And if in sharing that message, suffering comes into my life, then so be it. And so we're called to this and we consider the relationships in our life here in Kitchener-Waterloo. Who are our gods? Say, oh, well, we're moderns and we're, we're intellectual and we're evolved and we don't worship. Yes, we do. Our whole city worships. All your friends worship. All your colleagues worship. What is it that we worship? Last two years, a lot of our colleagues and our friends have been in a bit of a panic because the things that, they're, the things that they worship are in a coffin. They worship politics, and the, the, the leaders disappoint, and their god of politics is in the coffin. They worship their health, and then a couple of microbes go sideways on the other side of the pond, and the whole world comes to a screeching halt, and they're all freaked out because our health and vitality is in the coffin. I mean, when our gods are in the coffin, it's disconcerting. So you and I are called now. We're called to go into, this, into these relationships with wisdom and grace and patience and love, being guided by the Holy Spirit in a humble and confident way. Right? There's a time and place for it. It's, there's a time and place to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove in the way that we give it offense for the hope that we enjoy in Christ, to, to, to share our hope in Him, to be lights, to give hope for those who have wrapped their emotions and their minds and their, their whole life around something infinitely smaller than Jesus, hoping that it will give them what only Jesus can give. 
Paul speaks of the resurrection in verse 11. This resurrection is material and it's renewal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't, he was, I say this all the time. He wasn't a ghost. He was bodily resurrected. On the third day, the tomb was emptied and empty. And they saw the resurrected Christ, hundreds of them. And the significance of this means that if death for Christ was not final, united to him, death is not final, which means the renewal that is coming is the world that all of your friends and colleagues want that is evading them. The world of health without the disease, the world of unity without the greed and the oppression, the justice without the injustice, the mercy and the generosity. The renewal that is coming with Christ the King is a material renewal. It is a political renewal. When I say political renewal, I don't mean, don't think partisan way. I mean, globally, what God is after is, I am your God, you are my people, uh, and you are guided by the wise wisdom of my word, and that is politics proper. Rule and law and reign and sovereignty and, and submission to a sovereign, a sovereign who is wise and good and benevolent and loving and wise and cares for all of those under their governance. So the, the renewal of Jesus, the resurrection that's motivating Paul, that re- motivates you and I, should give us hope and boldness to come to our friends and our colleagues who have wrapped their lives around this small little thing that is evading them. And every time the world goes sideways, their hope goes sideways. But you and I, friends, our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And so may we share in Christ's suffering, right? The pattern of his life. May it be the pattern of ours. In every generation and in every society, the culture is dictating to us and saying, hey, you know, this thing right here, if you just live for this and define yourself by this, this is going to give you rest. And it doesn't, and it never has and never will. And so the church in every culture throughout all of history is called to do the exact same thing since this text that we're reading, which is to come and say, hey, this thing right here, if you live for it, it, it will not give rest to your soul. Your, rest will, your soul will only find rest in, in Christ alone. And so may we, by God's great grace, work this out. We, may we be willing to humbly and boldly share the, new, the good news of the gospel. And may the passion of Christ become our passions. And may we live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Let's pray.